Welcome to Madison Labor Radio. Labor Radio is dedicated to bringing news, information, and cultural events focused on working people and the labor movement to the Madison area and surrounding communities. I'm Gil Halstead, a former member of the Wisconsin Education Association Council and United Faculties and Staff. Thank you to all our listeners. Your support helps make Labor Radio and all the great programming on WORT possible. Hi, I'm Susie Tatone, a member of the Free Congregation of Salt County. Today, we have an update on negotiations between OPEIU workers and MG&E, hear from workers at Starbucks, take a closer look at gerrymandering in Wisconsin, and much more. If you like what you hear, please consider becoming a sustaining member of WART and Labor Radio. Workers at a unionized Starbucks store in Madison got an unexpected announcement from management, according to a worker there. Greg Jabowski spoke to him. On June 1st, workers at the State Street Starbucks store in Madison voted to unionize, joining Workers United as part of a national unionization of Starbucks stores, the second in Madison and the sixth in the state. Labor Radio spoke yesterday to Matt Cartwright, a shift supervisor of the State Street Starbucks, who spoke on what has or hasn't happened in discussions with Starbucks management since then. The response has been actually a lot of quiet. They still refuse to come to the bargaining table, but that's nothing new. That kind of applies to every store across the board. Nothing is new there. They refuse to bargain. Cartwright explains why he does not believe that Starbucks management has any desire to negotiate. Now, we have had a couple of people who I cannot reveal who they are, but a couple of people who have been involved in upper management with Starbucks, who have now left the company or still do work for the company. And what they have told us is essentially Starbucks does not plan on negotiating. They see the union and they see Workers United and they see labor movements as being amateurs who don't know what they're doing and that they don't expect it to go anywhere. And in that spirit, they don't have any intention or plans to negotiate or bargain. Rather, they plan on just making conditions kind of awful for workers and having high turnover rates to the point that workers who want to organize just leave. They can bring in new workers and decertify. And according to Cartwright, a recent announcement by management at the State Street store does not bode well, as Cartwright explains. So we have gotten a new store manager in, but we've also been told that going into the school year, which for our store is a very, very busy time, we become the busiest store in the state during the school year. Typically, we have about 50 to 70 workers for the school year. However, according to upper management now, we will no longer have that, but we will have between 25 to 30, and that's all we're permitted to have. This effective cutback in staffing is unprecedented at the State Street store, says Cartwright. This is the first time it has ever been anything different. I mean, in that cut, you know, from 50 to 70 to 25 to 30 is insane. That is an insane cut in workforce. And we're having to tell workers who've worked at the store for many years that, oh, sorry, you can't come back this school year. You have to go somewhere else because we just don't have room anymore. I mean, this store can easily have 30-minute period in which we have 180 customers. And they're expecting us to do that with, like, half of the staff. The announcement of the staffing freeze has already had a chilling effect, explains Cartwright, but he expects the union to stay strong. How are you supposed to swing working that amount with also doing school? It's just not going to work out. And so a lot of our workers, I mean, in that group have basically been like, well, I'm just going to quit at this point. This job isn't tenable for me anymore. This is not something that will work for me. It's just too much stress. I need to just find a different job. 
which I think is exactly what corporate wants with this. I think they're trying to drive people out. They're trying to like change out and have turnover in the store so they can try and do a decertification vote. But honestly, our store is still very, very, very pro-union. That was Matt Cartwright, a worker at Starbucks on State Street and a member of Workers United. Cartwright says that workers are crafting a response and continue to be in touch with their union nationally and locally with other unionized stores and with the South Central Federation of Labor. A Starbucks spokesperson, speaking today to Labor Radio, who did not consent to be recorded or have their name used for broadcast, says that management had proposed Wednesday, August 9th, two days ago, as the start of negotiations at the State Street store, but that, according to the spokesperson, the union bargaining committee did not respond. The spokesperson did not mention whether this date request refused bargaining over Zoom. The spokesperson did reiterate that Starbucks management considered as non-negotiable only accepting in-person negotiations and disallowing the use of a remote meeting platform such as Zoom. Workers at Madison's earlier unionized Capitol Square store, who were met with this demand in late 2022, had considered this merely a pretext by Starbucks management to put up roadblocks to workers and to avoid good-faith bargaining. For Labor Radio, I'm Greg Jabosky. Workers represented by the Office and Professional Employees International Union are in the midst of contentious contract negotiations with Madison Gas and Electric. Frank M. Spack reports. Contract negotiations between Madison Gas and Electric and the Office and Professional Employees International Union, Local 39, began in April. As of broadcast time, the negotiations have stalled with little progress to satisfy the needs of the workers. Labor Radio spoke with Kelsey Hahn, OPEIU Chief Steward of the Madison Gas and Electric Company Unit. We asked Chief Steward Hahn to describe the key issues. Well, one of the biggest ones for us is, of course, wages. It, it, we did a slightly longer contract than we had in previous years, and that meant that when all of this inflation kind of happened over the last couple of years, our wages really did not keep up with that. So we've been really wanting to get those up. We also had a lot of people abruptly get changed to working remote and then get brought back. And there's nothing in the contract about any of that. We had this big project. You live in the Madison area. You probably noticed your bill has looked a little bit different in the last two years. And that's been a really big <laughs> adjustment for a lot of our members. It also led to the company bringing in a lot of temps and contractors. That's been kind of a new thing for us and really concerning to see all of that. So we had to ask for some protections around that. Hand in hand with the wages, we'd wanted to see some improvements in our healthcare costs, which the company came in the door and basically said, day one, we want to have full control over your healthcare. The union had negotiated a cost of living clause, but it was not adequate to cover the ongoing inflation. Hence, wages were falling behind the actual increase in prices. MG&E's use of outside contractors and temporary workers has also been a source of contention with the union. Han explains. So we have pretty strong language around temp employees specifically, but the company has kind of treated that as like only if you're talking like a temp who you hire from QTI to fill in briefly because we really had huge problems with that in terms of the company misusing it. But when they bring in people and call them a contractor, when they bring in people and say and as consultants, those people might also end up doing our work and have ended up still doing our work. But because they weren't classified as a temporary employee by the company, that they didn't fall under those same restrictions. Has the company made substantive proposals to meet the needs of your members? They have not, and especially around the issues we sort of originally brought to the table. Something that we've had happen is that about two months into bargaining, after we had already gone into contract extension, the company did make these really substantive, substantive proposals around leave, which we did really need parental leave. That was also on our list because we have no parental leave at all. But 
they kind of reinvented all of it and it's very complicated there are a lot of restrictions with medical substantiation like it's just this it's this very huge overhaul that really impacts a lot of our members and there's some good stuff in there but then the original issues that we came to the table with have kind of fallen away and so it's been sort of this like i said there's good things in there but it's ended up being sort of this big frustrating distraction from the things that our members had actually come to the table wanting but like we want to get a contract and it's just held up the whole process to introduce this thing and so that's been really frustrating for us what tactics is the company using to defeat the union are they engaged in the or emulating true stage by delaying and dragging out negotiations needlessly? It kind of feels that way. And one thing that has been very different for us this year is that the company did hire a anti-union lawyer from uh, Littler Mendelssohn. So that is something that's been really disheartening to see the company move in that direction. There's a direction happening that's new and that's very concerning. The workers will determine their next steps based on the company's attitude at negotiations, which were scheduled for yesterday afternoon. The results of these discussions were not available to labor radio at broadcast time. Stuart Hahn added this observation about Madison Gas and Electric. I wanted to touch briefly, you know, and just say, you know, MG&E is this company that has really built their whole brand around, you know, we're your community energy company. And they talk about investing in the community and they sponsor things and they work with United Way and they do all of these things kind of in the name of saying that they care about the community. But then they have employees who work for them and who live in their community who are having to choose between groceries and rent. So I just feel like there's a disconnect in terms of how they're portraying themselves and how they actually want to take care of the parts of their community that work for them. Thanks to Chief Steward Kelsey Hahn representing workers at Madison Gas and Electric. In the meantime, OPEIU members at True Stage are also continuing their contract negotiations. No negotiations were scheduled for this past week. True Stage members are considering their next steps and expect to announce them in the coming week. I am Frank Emsbach for Madison Labor Radio. Negotiations with Madison Sourdough are stalled. Madison Sourdough United Workers have a plan to build support for the union. Carol Weidel has the story. Workers at Madison Sourdough, represented by United Food and Commercial Workers, met several times with representatives of the employer. According to the union's Facebook page, no agreements were reached, including the establishment of a standing labor management committee nor could the sides reach agreement on non-economic issues such as workplace safety and non-discrimination. These meetings have been especially difficult. The employer could not even agree on the current practice of paying its employees bi-weekly. The 47 workers in the bargaining unit formally voted for the union in an election supervised by the National Labor Relations Board. The union wants the employer to know that community supports these employees there will be a day of mutual aid and information tomorrow, Saturday, August 12th, at the Willie Street Park, 1002 Williamson Street, 
The park is located a block away from the store. The Saturday event is intended to engage and inform the broader Madison community about the union and about how contract negotiations are going. There will be supplies for buttons and window signs people can make or take to show their support, as well as informational flyers and baked goods. Though the workers are not currently on strike, they are raising money preemptively to reduce the financial burden on their members should that be a step the unions need to take in the future. Saturday, noon to 4, the listeners can learn more at Willie Street Park, 1002 Williamson Street. Reporting for Labor Radio, this is Carol Weidel. The Yellow Corporation, a major national freight carrier and employer of more than 20,000 union workers, announced this week that it is closing its doors. The company's financial statements raise questions about the circumstances surrounding the bankruptcy. Labor Radio's Sean Hagerup has more. The Yellow Corporation, a Nashville-based transportation company and employer of over 30,000 workers, announced late last week that it was closing its doors for good. The Chapter 11 bankruptcy, which was filed Sunday, comes just three years after Yellow received almost $730 million in pandemic-era loans from the federal government. While a Chapter 11 filing is used to restructure debt while operations continue, Yellow, like other trucking companies in recent years, will most likely liquidate. The company purports that a nine-month negotiation between themselves and the International Brotherhood of Teamsters, who represent the company's unionized workers, drove uncertain customers to other logistics vendors and prevented the implementation of a new business plan that would have allowed the company to modernize operations and consequently stay competitive. In fact, financial documents included with the company's filing in the U.S. Bankruptcy Court in Delaware show that, plagued with poor strategic planning, over-leveraged lines of credit, and missed payments to the union itself, the company had been running dangerously low on liquidity for over a decade before the breakdown of negotiations with the union late last year. Indeed, Yellow has racked up hefty bills since the turn of the century. A series of significant mergers in the early to mid-2000s, in which the company acquired ownership over former freight companies Roadway and USF, saddled the company with over $2 billion of debt and nearly forced an earlier bankruptcy during the 2008 financial crisis. The company only narrowly avoided such a fate through a 2011 restructuring plan that wiped out all of the company's equity and forced both union and non-union workers to take a significant pay cut. In the intervening period, Yellow has posted just three profitable quarters and only managed to stay afloat through the extension of multiple lines of credit from outside sources. During the height of the COVID-19 pandemic in 2020, the Treasury Department granted the company their high nine-figure loan on national security grounds. A congressional probe concluded in June of this year that the Treasury and Defense Department's, quote, made missteps in the decision and noted that Yellow's, quote, precarious financial position at the time of the loan and continued struggles exposed taxpayers to a significant risk of loss. Despite the continued lifelines, the company has been unable to turn their financial situation around, holding an outstanding debt of about $1.5 billion as of March of this year. Other major creditors the company was indebted to at the time of its bankruptcy include Amazon, BNSF Railways, and the Teamsters. Days before the bankruptcy filing, the company also agreed to maintain health benefits for workers at two Yellow Corporation subsidies to avoid a walkout, which included compensation for $50 million in previously missed payments to the central state's health and welfare fund. Questioned on the culpability of the union in the demise of Yellow, Teamsters president Sean O'Brien did not mince words. 
No, not at all. I mean, our members have given back $5 billion in concessions since 2009 and three other times uh, since 2009. Yellow's always come back to the well looking for more and more out of our members. Uh, and it just got to a point where they were so mismanaged. Uh, it's always easy to blame someone else, and uh, that's okay. But at the end of the day, the facts don't lie, and uh, Yellow's got to look themselves in the mirror and accept what they've done. The union's president further stated via the union's website that the bankruptcy represented, quote, a sad day for workers and the American freight industry. The union mentioned in a statement released last week that, quote, the International is putting infrastructure in place to help affected members get the assistance they need to find good union jobs throughout freight and other industries. Reporting for Labor Radio, this is Sean Hagerup. To understand the recent petition to the Supreme Court of Wisconsin regarding current gerrymandered legislative maps, Labor Radio spoke to Doug Poland, a partner at Stafford Rosenbaum LLP and co-founder of Law Forward. What can you tell us about the recent challenges to Wisconsin's legislative district maps? There's a group essentially of five different law firms that combined to form one legal team and are representing 19, we call them petitioners, they could be thought of as plaintiffs, who filed a challenge to the current state legislative districts. That lawsuit was filed on August 2nd, the day after Justice Protasiewicz was sworn in, and it seeks to have the court declare that the current state legislative districts, which were adopted by the court in the spring of 2022, that those be declared unconstitutional and that it instead replace them with districts that do satisfy the requirements of the Wisconsin Constitution. What aspects of the Constitution are violated according to these challenges? There are really three grounds that we've raised that we're asking the court to rule on. The one that is probably the most obvious is that the districts themselves are not contiguous. There are requirements under the Wisconsin Constitution for how the districts need to be drawn. To be contiguous, these districts need to actually be physically touching. In 55 of the 99 assembly districts in Wisconsin, there are parts of the districts that are not touching other parts. They are what we call islands. A second claim that we raised is based on what's called separation of powers doctrine. It's very important to our democratic system of government that we have these different branches of government that act as checks and balances on one another. So through the regular legislative process, the legislature adopted districts and the governor exercised his constitutional right of veto. And if the court nevertheless decides that the legislature's maps should be the maps, that eviscerates the governor's constitutional right to be able to veto legislation. Our argument is that that violates the separation of powers doctrine. The third basket of claims that we have are the claims that partisan gerrymandering violates the Wisconsin Constitution. There are a number of different provisions in the Wisconsin Constitution that we are arguing that it violates. It violates the right of expression. A gerrymander is retaliation against free speech. It takes away the rights of people to associate with one another based on political parties. It basically punishes them for exercising that right. It violates equal protection doctrine. There is also an article of our state constitution that requires that for any legal injury that people suffer under state or federal law, there must be a remedy for that. And partisan gerrymandering creates a legal injury for voters 
who are deprived, even though they have a majority, of having any meaningful representation in the state assembly or the state senate. Are there solutions that you're recommending? We'll do however the court wants to do it. If the court says, well, we want you to propose districts, we can do that. If the court wants us just to work with a special master to identify the criteria, we can certainly do that. The one thing that needs to be considered, whether it's a special master or the court that's making the decision, is we do believe that the districts that are adopted that have to be implemented have to be mindful of the partisan makeup of the districts because they cannot put into place another partisan gerrymander. What can we expect going forward with these cases? This is a very preliminary stage right now. We filed our petition for an original action. We've not heard back from the court yet what it's going to do. The court typically will issue a scheduling order and it will require the respondents in the case and anybody who wants to try to intervene to respond to the original action petition by a specific date. To follow the case and for more information, listeners can go to lawforward.org. That was Doug Poland. This is Janine Ramsey reporting for Labor Radio. In other bargaining news from Madison, International Brotherhood of Electrical Workers, Local 2304, continues bargaining with Madison Gas and Electric. Bargaining is in its fourth month and wages are still an issue. The union is emphasizing the need for Madison Gas and Electric to pay wages and offer protections against inflation in an amount needed to attract and retain workers. According to the union, the company made profits of over $111 million last year. The company and the union are separated by about $1.39 million over two years. In other words, a small percentage of MG&E's profits. The parties will meet again on Monday, August 14th. The union is currently working under a one-week contract extension, which runs through next Monday, August 14th. Amidst the ongoing writers and actors strike, visual effect workers at a major Hollywood studio have petitioned for a union of their own. Labor Radio has the story. Visual effects crews at Marvel Studios filed for a union election with the National Labor Relations Board on Monday. The move signals a shift in an industry that has largely remained non-union since its inception in the 1970s. A supermajority of Marvel's more than 50 worker crew spread across New York, Los Angeles, and Atlanta had signed authorization cards indicating that they wished to be represented by the International Alliance of Theatrical Stage Employees, or IATSE. This marks the first time visual effects professionals have joined together to demand the same rights and protections as their unionized colleagues in the film industry. Mark Patch, visual effects organizer for IATSE, highlighted the significance of this moment in a statement released by the union. Quote, For almost half a century, workers in the visual effects industry have been denied the same protections and benefits 
their co-workers and crewmates have relied upon since the beginning of the Hollywood film industry. This is a historic first step for visual effects workers coming together with a collective voice demanding respect for the work we do. While positions like production designers, camera operators, sound, editors, hair and makeup, costume and wardrobe, and lighting, among others, have historically been represented by IATSE in motion picture and television, workers and visual effects classifications historically have not. The Marvel visual effects workers filing for a union election comes at a pivotal moment in the film and television industry, amidst ongoing strikes by both the actors and writers guilds as both seek fair contracts with the studios and the Alliance of Motion Picture and Television Producers. IATSE International President Matthew D. Loeb put it in plain terms, quote, We are witnessing an unprecedented wave of solidarity that's breaking down old barriers in the industry and proving we're all in this fight together. That doesn't happen in a vacuum. Entertainment workers everywhere are sticking up for each other's rights. That's what our movement is all about. Reporting for Labor Radio, this is Sean Hagerup. And now, our statistic of the week. The tentative agreement between the UPS and the Teamsters will result in a $21 an hour minimum wage for all workers in UPS, an important increase for covered workers. But lost in the hoopla surrounding the contract is another attempt to raise the wages of those who need it most, the Raise the Wage Act of 2023. The federal minimum hourly wage is just $7.25 an hour and has not increased since the year 2009. The Raise the Wage Act of 2023 introduced in the U.S. House of Representatives and the U.S. Senate on July 25, 2023, would gradually raise the federal minimum wage to $17 an hour by 2028. The bill would also gradually raise and then eliminate sub-minimum wages for tipped workers, workers with disabilities, and youth workers, so that all workers covered by the Fair Labor Standards Act would be at the same wage level. The Economic Policy Institute analysis of the legislation shows how far we have to go as a society to enable all people to live decently. EPI's analysis shows that raising the federal minimum wage to $17 an hour by 2028 would impact 27,858,000 people across the country, or 19% of the U.S. workforce. The increases would provide an additional $86 billion annually in wages for the country's lowest paid workers, with the average affected worker who works year-round receiving an extra $3,100 per year. While the increase in the minimum wage will benefit almost $28 million, but even should it pass, those benefits will be strung out over several years, and thus by 2028, when the increase would be in full effect, inflation may have lessened the real impact. Thanks to the Economic Policy Institute for information for the story, I am Frank Emsbach from Madison Labor Radio. Thanks for listening to Madison Labor Radio. I'm Gil Halstead. Thanks to editor Frank Emspach, assistant Robin G, reporters Greg Jabowski, Sean Hagerup, Janine Ramsey, Carol Weidel, and damage control specialist Joanne Powers. 
Special thanks to Keith Steffen, our reader coordinator, web poster Anu Lee, and to all our readers and the members of IBEW Local 2304 WORT Staff Collective. And I'm Susie Tatone. We also like to thank all of the generous contributors to Labor Radio and WORT. Please stay tuned for The Blues Cruise with Dave Watts and The Professor. Bill Clark. <laughs>